In each situation, I try to ask myself, what's the most loving thing I can do right now for myself? Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is James Finley, a contemplative practitioner and clinical psychologist. James helps seekers who desire to live a contemplative whole life. He draws from his experience as a former monk and spiritual director of Thomas Merton. Today, him and Eric discuss many of his works and concepts. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad we can do this. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. We're going to talk about um, some of your books in the contemplative Christian tradition. But before we do that, let's start with the parable like we always do. There is a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, bravery, and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. He looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. For me, a simple direct way to begin would be to say that How I feed the good wolf is, in each situation, I try to ask myself, uh, all things considered, what's the most loving thing I can do right now for myself, for the gift of my body, the gift of my mind, uh, for this person, this relationship, uh, this family, uh, this community, uh, really this plant, this animal, the earth that sustains us all. And so I would say that it's love. 
that feeds the good wolf. And I try to let that be the place where I check in with myself to stay on that path. That's a really good and simple question, although the answers may not always be immediately simple, but it's a pretty good grounding question. It is. Yeah. So you and I are going to talk about a variety of topics, but we're going to talk about a book you wrote called Merton's Palace of Nowhere, which is based on your experience of working with Thomas Merton and you know knowing his readings and his, his life really well. So let's start by, for people who don't know who Thomas Merton is, tell us a little bit about who he was. Uh, Thomas Merton was born, I think, in 1915 in France. His father was an artist, and they, his mother and father both died of cancer when he was young. And he went to Cambridge University for one year and was um, kind of very suspicious of anything religious, basically, you might say. And there were rumors he got a girl pregnant woman pregnant there during the war, and he was drinking too much. And so people concerned about him sent him to New York, where people could keep a closer eye on him. And he went to Columbia University. And at Columbia University, he had a series of spiritual experiences that led him to uh, want to be baptized in the Catholic Church. And he was considering for a while working with Dorothy Day, the Catholic Worker Movement. He was considering for a while joining the Franciscans. And then he decided to enter the Trappist Monastery, this cloistered Trappist Monastery, the Abbey of Gethsemane, to live as a cloistered monk. And uh, when he got into the monastery, I think 28 years old is when he entered. He wrote his um, uh, autobiography called The Seventh Story Mountain, and it went on the New York Times bestsellers list. And he became known through that book as a source of hope in the world. He went on to write many books and became one of the most widely read and widely loved spiritual writers of our age. And um, he died in... Um, in 1968, toward the end of his life in the 60s, he got very interested in interfaith dialogue with the non-Christian contemplative traditions, with the Sufi tradition, the Buddhist tradition, uh, the, the Jewish tradition, and he was in active dialogue with these people. And through that way, he was invited to attend an international conference in Bangkok, Thailand, of Christian monastics with the with other religious traditions, and while at that conference, he was electrocuted in his room in uh, 1968, December the 10th, 1968, same day Karl Barth died, I think. And uh, he was 53 years old. So that's, that's kind of a sense of Merton's life. And so tell me how you knew him and, and what your relationship to him was. Uh, when I was, I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio, the oldest of six children. My father was a violent, abusive alcoholic and uh, my mother was a devout Catholic, and a lot of the arguments in the home were over Catholicism and religion. And um, so when I was 14 years old, I was attending this Catholic high school, and one of the teachers in the class mentioned monasteries. I'd never heard of monasteries before, and mentioned Thomas Merton. And so that day I went after school to the school library and found a book by Merton called The Sign of Jonas, which is a journal he kept as a monk in the monastery. And on the opening page of that journal, he says, As for me, Merton says of himself, As for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude, to disappear in the secret of God's face. 
And at 14 years old, I did not know what that meant, but something in me did and said, me too. Like, I want that. And when I read that book, I read it over and over and over. And it was clear that the person who wrote this book knew the way to that secret place in God. And I started writing to the monastery. The violence was still continuing. And uh, my master plan was I was under the monastery. I would be a monk. I would sit at Merton's feet and have him guide me in this path toward this experience of God consciousness, Christ consciousness. And that's what I did. I, I When I graduated, I I went there, and as novice master, he was became my spiritual director. I was there. I was there for nearly six years, and uh, so I came under his influence first through his writings, and then in person, uh, as living as a monk in the monastery. And that's how I came under his influence. And you wrote a book that I referenced earlier called Merton's Palace of Nowhere, that sort of explores his spiritual life and his approach. And you say. Merton's whole spirituality, in one way or another, pivots on the question of ultimate human identity. Merton's message is that we are one with God. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on that? I guess one way to say it would be first to, to bear witness to it, uh, ultimately speaking, as a statement of faith, and then to go from there to the ways that we experience that. And I think one way to put it ultimately, and what that is because you could put it this way we could say that if, if right now we could be interiorly awakened so that we could see like realize all that we really 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 are we would see god the infinite reality the infinite love that is god pouring itself out and completely giving itself away as our own deepest identity in our nothingness without god that is, when God creates me, when God creates a person, God creates a kapox dei, a capacity for God. And so I'm subsisting in a relationship with God, like light subsists in flame. And that subsisting relationship of likeness, this God-given godly oneness in love, is my, that's my true self. That's my ultimate identity. That's my God-given godly identity, which is also then my destiny to realize that. And that is Christian terminology or, or Catholic terminology, but really Merton and yourself are, are part of a, a deeper tradition of often referred to as mysticism or, you know, contemplative practice. And that, you know, one way of seeing that is you hear a similar experience described in a lot of different traditions. Would you agree with that? Yes, Merton in the early 60s, um, in his own evolving spiritual journey, he was reading the essays of the Zen scholar D.T. Suzuki. And he wrote a letter to Suzuki, which is in the back of his book, Zen and the Birds of Appetite. And he wrote to Suzuki and said, when I read these Zen stories of enlightenment, uh, something leaps off the page at me and says, this is true. And I would like to know if I, as a Christian, could dialogue with you as a Buddhist about this common ground. Thomas Merton once said, the world will not survive religion based on tribal consciousness. That in the name of religion, uh, the religious people will be at the forefront of discord. But if those who are truest to what is deepest in their own tradition, which is what transcends their own tradition, 
If they would bear witness to that, religious consciousness could be a source of unity of the world. And so Thich Nhat Hanh came to visit him when he was still in Vietnam, before he went to Plum Village in France. The Jewish scholar and mystic uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, came to visit Merton. He carried on a very deep dialogue with the Sufis, with the Muslim mystics. Uh, yogis came from India to be in dialogue with him about this deep yoga. And so he was one of the Christian monastics who was at the heart of this faith dialogue of this contemplative, mystical depth dimension that's found in all world religions. And Merton also saw that same dimension in some poets and in philosophers and artists and those who serve the poor, bearing witness to this ultimate mystery that utterly transcends us, even as it utterly permeates every moment of our life. And he was very active in that dialogue process. Yeah, ironically, I came to Merton so many years ago through his writings about Zen. Yeah. I was interested in Zen, and and um, and I found my way to him that way. That was my path into Thomas Merton. Yeah. And so he ultimately talks about, and this is a term that that is used very similarly in 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 different Buddhist or non dual schools. But he talks about a true self and a false self. So tell me a little bit about what that means to, to him, but ultimately really to you. Yes, I suppose one way, it's a subtle thing. I mean, you, reading Merton, you can reflect on different passages and so on, how it's through the lineage or through this, these traditions. But one way to express it would be this, uh, would be to say that uh, when God created, to use this theistic language, Christian tradition, that when God created you, uh, God did not have to think up who you might be. For from all eternity, God eternally contemplated you, hidden with Christ in God from before the origins of the universe. This is the you that never began. It's the unborn you. For God never, 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 never has not known who you eternally are in God destined for God. And this you, this identity that God contemplates in God, is you that will never die. And that and that capacity for God, that God-given capacity, which is really uh, an invitation or the capacity to share in God's own infinite life as infinitely as God shares in that life and, and our nothingness without God, that's, that's our true self. Then God endows that person, the person identity, with a nature, our human nature, and the glory of our human nature, the most sublime quality of our human nature, is not reason, is, is the immensity of that and all of its implications for, for reason, science, and all of that. The most sublime capacity of human nature is to awaken to the person. And so Merton says that in our nature, in our ego, we come upon within our ego what transcends our ego. And so he says in his closing chapters of New Seeds of Contemplation, he says, we do not have to go very far to catch echoes or glimpses of this oneness. He says, when we, see, when we turn to see a flock of birds descending, where we know love in our own heart, where we see children in a moment they're really children, 
like the Zen poet Basho, we hear a frog land in a quiet pond with a solitary splash. He said that the newness, the purity of vision, the turning inside out of all values gives us a glimpse of this unitive mystery, this one life that is at once God's and our own. And that inner awakening he saw then to be the, the like the deepest expression of our nature. And then an awakening to it, because love is never imposed, it's always offered. We're to freely assent to that. That is, we're freely to give ourselves in love to the love that gives itself to us as our deepest identity. And I would say in kind of poetic language, that would be a way to kind of set a tone uh, for the true self and the moments in which we realize it. And Merton goes on to equate the false self to sin, and he says, to say I was born in sin is to say I came into the world with a false self. I was born in a mask. Yes, the, the false self, I, I think a distinction that's, that's very helpful with this the, is the ego, how Merton saw the ego, which he sometimes calls the external self, or it's the self, our personality. It's a self that's kind of formed through genetic predispositions and internalizing experiences and so on. That our ego, in this kind of way of looking at things, God wants us to have a healthy ego. Because if our ego isn't healthy, we suffer and other people suffer. A lot of mental health is devoted to the healing of the woundedness of the ego. So the false self is not the ego. The false self is an illusion that the ego harbors about itself, namely that it has the final say in who we are, that we are nothing but our internalized beliefs and convictions and strategies and goals and attainments, that we're nothing but that. That, that illusion which is to be exiled from this abyss-like ground of our identity in God, that estrangement he calls the false self, which we then act out upon ourselves and others. Uh, by the ways, by the traumatizing ways we treat ourselves and others in the earth. And so that's what he means by the false self. He goes on to talk about that, he says, the focus of sin is shifted from the realm of morality to that of ontology, which is being. For Merton, the matter of who we always are precedes what we do. Thus, sin is not essentially an action, but rather an identity. For a long time, I was a clinical psychologist, and I worked with trauma, and I went through my own trauma therapy, and uh, about identity. And um, see, I'd, I'd put it this way, this might be one way to say it, is that what we're talking about in the discovery of the true self is the process of dying to our dreaded and cherished illusion that anything less than an infinite union with infinite love has the authority to name who we are. That there is a certain kind of, 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 of a felt perception about ourself, this self that's autonomous and separate and real all on its own, and has to try to navigate and make its way through the world on its own terms. He's calling that case of mistaken identity kind of the ontological foundations of this, which the Buddhists call ignorance and Jesus called blindness. So the moral order, the, 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 the sinful, namely the acts that hurt ourselves and others, is the acting out of that mistaken identity.
Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. One of the things we talk a lot about on this show is living by your values. To do this, you need to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've always found therapy a really powerful tool for getting clear on what matters to me the most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash feed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash feed. You wrote a book called The Contemplative Heart. So tell me a little bit about what is contemplation to you? A sense of contemplation is, I, put, I think I put it this way, is, you know, you know, first to contemplate means to pay attention, to observe carefully. So, for example, we pause to contemplate something that catches our eye say, a flower in the garden, where we pause to hear the sound of the rain, where you see people in an art museum pausing before each piece. And so this contemplation is, in one sense, then, a state of sustained attentiveness. It's a state of, a state of awareness in which all our discursive thoughts tend to fall into the background. And there tends to be this sustained attentiveness infused with love. If I abide in that, it is if I stay in that state, it brings about a qualitative transformation of my deepest sense of my own subjectivity. I kind of drop down into a qualitatively deeper sense of myself, unexplainably one with the beauty and the mystery of that which I'm contemplating. That deep depth, we would say then, is really an abyss. It's a bottomless abyss. And we, we begin to make our descent into this bottomless abyss of God, welling up and giving itself to us as the virginal immediacy of that moment, like in the arms of the beloved or reading a child a good night story or up in the night or sitting in med whatever it is, the pause between two lines of a poem, whatever that opening is to the deeper place, a contemplation is first an event, but then we can choose to sustain that which is just as a meditative practice, we can choose to sustain the stance of habituating uh, ever deeper habituated states of oneness of that mystery. And so contemplative prayer is a practice 
I don't like that word, so I'm going to use it just to start, right? You actually say a contemplative practice is any act habitually entered into with your whole heart as a way of awakening, deepening, and sustaining a contemplative experience. But one of the things that you often talk about, and Merton did, and how almost impossible this is, you say in solitary prayer, we find ourselves facing the dilemma of having to do what we are incapable of doing. Let's say we would begin first with one of these moments of awakening these kind of inner quickenings that happen, uh, that kind of wash over us, you know, like turning to see a flock of birds descending or a moment of intimacy with another person or poetry or whatever these, whatever the realm is in which the deepening event happens. In that deepening moment, in that inner quickening of momentary, we might say we're a momentary mystic, it doesn't lie in our power to sustain it. That is, it doesn't lie in our power to make it happen. But what we can do is that we can freely choose to assume the stance that offers the least resistance to be overtaken by what we cannot attain. It attains us in our powerlessness to attain it. And that's meditation practice. So meditation, the Christian tradition, one of the books I wrote called Christian Meditation, there's a chapter on called A Ladder to Heaven. And it's this classical thing one finds in the tradition that begins with, with Lexio Divina, like this listening to a word that's heard. And even before you think about it, you immediately recognize that it's beautiful and it's beautiful because it's true. So it's a stance of, then that stance of receiving that word evokes a dialogue from us, which is discursive meditation. It's like a loving, prayerful exchange between ourself and God through a text in scripture or a poet, whose ever voice that is, it resonates with us in this way. And then that, that lexio and that response in meditation gives rise to prayer, which is the love response of the heart center, like help me with this. That process, that dialogical discursive process, can give rise to a moment where we, we find ourselves resting wordlessly in the presence of God beyond thoughts and images. And I think this happens in human intimacy too. There are certain moments between two people who are lovingly sharing in a very vulnerable way their love for each other. And this loving exchange back and forth with each other opens out a moment where they're kind of silenced by the depth of the love in which they are one and for which they can find no words. In which case, then, the relationship becomes meditation for two. They're in a meditative state of realizing together the divinity of the incarnate intimacy of their love for one another. I love what you just said in there about it's taking the stance of least resistance. You know, we're told, particularly in Zen, that you're just supposed to sit. That's it, right? And we realize that we can't do that, but we can do many things. We can, you know, sit and sleep and think and all sorts of stuff. But <laughs> the sit is beyond us, that's right? That's right. And that ultimately awakening is a is a matter of something happens to us. We can't make it happen. And and my experience has been sometimes the more I'm trying to make it happen, the more I stand in my own way. But I love that idea of a posture of least resistance. It's another way of explaining what I often say, which is how do you try not to try? Exactly. But see, I wonder if, too, like a couple of years I was invited by Chakram Trumpa Rinpoche to be one of the Christian teachers at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, which is also how I got in touch with Sounds True, also Tammy Simon and Sounds True, because they're there in Boulder. And the talks there with these these Buddhists and Christian teachers, it really, one of the things that came out in this 
in this exchange was that the people who are faithful to meditation practice are not people who know how to meditate, but rather they're people who sit deeply in their inability to meditate. If by meditate, meaning they can achieve through sheer effort of their will, the sustained meditative state, because the only thing the ego can achieve is more of itself. But if I come to the impasse where I can't go on, I do not know how to go on. But instead of stopping and running away, I place my trust in the mystery that unexplainably sustains me in my inability to meditate. And if I sit there, whatever my tradition is, it might be a word or it might be bare attention, shikantaza, or it might be contempt. That, that stance of sustained vulnerability trusting that I'm being unexplainably sustained, I would say, you know, it's really was unexplainably given in the miracle of each breath and heartbeat. Merton says, the most important thing in your life is something that you don't understand and don't need to understand because God loves you. This happens in therapy too. It often walls up out of powerlessness where we don't know how to go on. And it's very risky, but if we don't panic and we keep our balance, we can discover that there is the welling up out of the brokenness itself, that which unexplainably sustains us in the brokenness. And uh, I think meditation is a kind of an artistry of kind of gently practicing that radical vulnerability and where the unit of consciousness happens. Yeah, I had a teacher once in discussing this matter of the will. He said, the will is useful to get you to a place of sitting down to meditate. And then... <laughs> And then it's not really of any use at that point. Certain people are accident prone, right? By putting themselves in, in a position. Merton once told you to quit trying so hard in prayer, right? He said, how does an apple ripen? It just sits in the sun. And by the way, it's interesting about monastic life and Buddhism. All monastic traditions are this way, really. It's very strange in a way because what it does is a, it's a tradition of attrition, not addition. That is what it does is it removes complexities and distractions. And you're left to live in silence in the ordinariness of the human experience, prayer and work. So this rhythm of the Psalms and manual labor in silence, and you kind of settle down into this deep kind of being present to yourself as unexplainably precious in your brokenness. And, um, you know, you're kind of led along that path. I'll tell you a story I share with people in the in the talks I'd give on Merton on what we're talking about right now. Is that I say, imagine there's a woman who marries a psychologist, and on their 25th wedding anniversary, he gives her a book that he's been secretly writing about her over all those years. And when she lifts the heavy tome from the box, he says with pride in his voice, if you look in the back there, you'll see you're completely indexed. So anything you want to know about yourself, you can look yourself up. And tears come to her eyes, and she throws the book down, and she's so upset. And he's crestfallen because he's already secretly begun work on their golden anniversary present, which is a three-volume work called Us, cross-referenced with the U volume. That is, the heart knowledge of intimacy is not achieved by the sum total of internalizing facts. It is rather is achieved in a transformative process of surrendering to the gift and the miracle of what love asks of out, of out of us, or the way love is translating us into itself.
Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai. If you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. That using of our intellect as the tool that we think gets us there. I mean, I was this way for a long time. I would much rather, well, I'm still this way. I have to work against it. I'd much rather read about spirituality than I'd sit down and actually sit <laughs> quietly and practice it like it's it's a far easier thing for me to do to sit there is way harder and so i've been recently doing a little bit of koan study with with a teacher and it's very intention is to undercut that entire process of intellect and it's it's just a new type of practice i hadn't really done before and am finding interesting to see what happens when i deliberately try not to solve something that i'm sort of also trying to solve that's really true and it means of course that the conceptual mind has its role of course up to that another thing i think is very significant about these mystic teachers whether it's koans or sutras or christian mystic scripture understood at this level is that then in that breakthrough into that wordless state. The mystic teacher is the one who uses words in the service of the unexplainable. That is, the mystic teacher is the person whose words bear witness to this. Zen Master Dogen says, find that person whose words awaken your heart with a desire for the great way, then forget everything else. And so they bear witness to it, and then they offer trustworthy guidance in it. And so then they use language in the service of helping a person to let go of their dependency on the kind of language that stops short at explanations, to find the language as kind of a cry from the heart, the language that is the expression of our, of our true self or the Dharma or Christ consciousness and so on. That's a beautiful way to say it. One of the other things that Merton talks about is this paradox that in solitude he rediscovered the heart of the world. You wrote, it is the paradox that true solitude draws us into communion with others, and true communion with others draws us to solitude. And you say that the monk's vocation was to find others in solitude. The vocation of people in the world is to find solitude in the midst of others. The true self embraces both solitude and others. 
Yeah, let's say in the light of this talk we're having right now, for example, let's say that I'm learning to live in this unexplainable intimate immediacy of myself and my poverty, un unexplainably sustained as precious in my poverty. And, and, I, and I, get to, I have this experiential self-knowledge, which is humility. I live in this experiential self-knowledge. The more I deepen that experiential self-knowledge, the more I know you. Because each one of us is a unique addition of the universal story of being a human being. And so the more I sit and listen to you out of the depths of my own intimate unfolding, the more I can quietly listen to you and join you in your way of expressing that vulnerability, and we can kind of meet each other. I know my, the interconnectedness of all of us in this interior enigmatic richness and poverty of the depths of the mystery of being a human being, which then in the Christian tradition becomes the basis for the corporal works of mercy or for social justice. Once I see the dignity of the human person, that we're each worth all that God is worth, then that moves us or even impels us to respond to wherever there is injustice or any human being is being treated um, in any way less than they deserve to be treated as, as a precious presence in the world. So, Jim, how does that apply to what we were talking before about this idea of not being able to make effort? Let's say it applies in this way. Let's say that solitude is the experience of being less and less able to explain to anybody, including ourselves, what's happening to us. Or to explain to anybody, including ourselves, this desire to reach this realized unitive state. And we sit in meditation, therefore, in that kind of solitude of the inability to adequately articulate the unconsummated longings that moves us to continue on in our meditative practice. And what we find in the practice is that we come up against the arduous nature of it all. It has an arduous quality to it. One of the things that helps me, like an image for this, this is deeply Christian as God's mercy, and then in Buddhism as compassion as the body of emptiness is that I say, sometimes we think that meditation practice, realizing this unitive state, I compare it to like a high jumper, Olympic high jumper, trying to jump over a very high bar. And the bar is so high, we exhaust ourselves, repeatedly running up to it, trying to jump over it, and we cannot jump over it. And when we've exhausted ourselves, when we've spent ourselves in this effort that we can't do it, an amazing thing happens. Compassion steps out, takes the bar, and places it flat on the ground. And approaching the bar, bewildered as to the simplicity of the task, we trip over it and fall into God's arms. Well, we trip over it and we fall into the pure Dharma field. Uh, the Buddha realized on the night of the Enlightenment, the intimate immediacy of the divinity of the phenomenal world. So it comes about actually in coming to the end of our resources. And then in the very end of the resources, in that very point of poverty, and then staying there, that's where that which infinitely beyond us comes rushing through the opening of our poverty and grants itself to us. And I think that kind of imagery helps to understand like in Buddhism, like right effort. What is this effective effort in awakening? How are you using that word poverty? 
I mean it one in the, in the deepest sense that it, just as it doesn't lie within my power to bring myself in existence, it doesn't lie my, in my power to keep myself in existence. To be at the deathbed of a dying loved one is tangibly clear that our next breath does not belong to us, lest we be presumptuous, that my life arises moment by moment by moment by moment as a gift and a miracle in the virginal immediacy of the present moment. That's that deep poverty. Poverty is also expressed. Thomas Merton once said, we should all get down on our knees right now and thank God we can't live the way we want to. God doesn't let us get away with it. Our poverty is our inability to rise to the occasion of our own ideals, of our own aspirations, of the should that we're trying. And by the way, then we tend to do the same thing with other people. We impose that on them. And so my poverty, as I come to this acceptance of my poverty, there's a noble aspiration. And I come to the poverty of my ability to actualize that aspiration. And if I sit very deeply in the acceptance of my poverty to make it happen on my terms, it can unexplainably start to happen on God's terms, like a mysterious granting, uh, a mysterious kind of um, light that shines so brightly in the very darkness in which I'd lost my way. And I think this happens in marriages, this happens in parenting. Anything real has this quality where if we, if we let it, it sifts us like wheat and it brings us to the end of our resources and we learn to open ourselves to being unexplainably sustained by a mystery within and beyond ourselves that takes us to itself. And I think that's wisdom, really. I think that's one way of understanding wisdom. Well, that is beautifully said and a beautiful place for us to wrap up. You and I are going to talk a little bit more in the post-show conversation about uh, a quote of yours that I want to discuss. And the quote is, the depths of the self are the heights of God. So you and I are going to discuss that in the post-show conversation. Listeners, if you are interested in that, you can become a member by going to oneufeed.net slash join. You get access to all the post-show conversations, ad-free episodes, and a special mini episode I do every week called a teaching song and a poem and usually a dumb joke. So oneufeed.net slash join. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you, and I really enjoyed reading your work, so thank you. I want to thank you also for inviting me to do this, and I feel such a kinship with you and this ministry of trying to offer this to the world and help other people, so I'm glad we could do this. Thank yes, you. Yes, I feel the same. Thank you. Okay, bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. 
Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 